0: All right, well, it's good to be with you guys as we continue our Advent Sermon series. And in case you have not been with us over the past few weeks, we have been exploring and contemplating the glory of Christ, right? The glory of God that can be seen in Christ. Because like Moses prayed a long time ago, we are wired to desire the glory of God. We're wired to want to see God's glory. We're wired to want to see his magnificence, right? His worth, his grandeur, the perfection of all that he is. God's glory is something that our souls long to see. And by looking deep into the person of Jesus, I believe that we actually can see the glory of God. Because, as we have learned, Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And here's why this is important. This is why we feel as if this is something that's worth considering this Advent season. Although we will get to the Nativity scene, right? We'll get to the Gospel of Luke. We wanted to really prime ourselves before we got there. Because often the busyness of Christmas, the busyness of just this time of year, can draw our hearts and draw our affections away from feasting on this reality, right? It's really easy to get caught up on the presents, right? The parties, like the things to do, the people that you want to have over, the Christmas cards that you want to send out. And all of those are really good. And I recommend all, all of them. What I do know is that oftentimes those things can draw us away from the, the great reality that is Advent. Even those good things are not meant to be the main thing. They're meant to be the bread that leads to the steak dinner. Right? I don't know if you guys have ever eaten at the JT in town. right? There's some really good things they give you ...before the steak comes out. The french fries, the salad, the soups. But those are just appetizers... ...to the main thing. And so even though there's a lot of good stuff going around... ...do not settle for the appetizer. Long for the glory of the season. And that is the glory of Christ. Now I know this time of year can also be very difficult... Right? It's not all just really good appetizers. Some of them are really difficult. Right, the, the looming new year, maybe struggle with finances, relational tension. A lot of things come up during this time of year, doesn't it? And likewise, even those things can draw our heart and our minds away from the reality that is the glory of Christ. Because unlike Christmas Day, which will be be here next Sunday, and then be gone the following Sunday. The glory of Christ remains. The glory of Christ is not going anywhere. And so why not fix this Advent season, right, this Christmas season, why not fix our hearts on something that's not going to be gone on December 26th, but something that's eternal, something that we can lean into after December and for the rest of our lives. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want to do. I'm, I'm so easily satisfied with that as what is temporary. I'm so easily satisfied with those things. And I'm asking and I'm praying for my own heart that it would long for something that's not temporary, that it would rest in something that's eternal, and that is the glory of Christ. And if you would, if you find yourself in church today, you know, maybe you've had a lot of those good appetizers. Maybe you're coming in just worn out. Or maybe you would not even consider yourself a Christian this morning. You're, you're here, and it takes a lot of courage, and I want to um, just thank you for displaying that courage to maybe come and join a bunch of people that you don't know if you agree with them on. But wherever we, however we find ourselves this morning, why not for the next... 30, 40 minutes give ourselves to thinking deeply about the glory of Christ in his work and see what God does with that. And if you don't even believe in God, maybe this is a good time to ask him, Lord, if you're real, if this is all true, let it be known to me today. Let it be known to me today. But this is what I'm praying for that we would see the glory of Christ in his work this morning. In his work. In what Jesus has done, that we would see the glory of Christ. And I want to do that by primarily looking at the book of Romans, particularly Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. We're actually going to look at a lot of text today, but that's where I want to start Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. If you're using one of those black ESV Pew Bibles, that's on page 942, I believe. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. But as you are turning there, let me go ahead and just pause like I normally do. I want to pray. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for our kiddos next door. And I ask that as I do that, will you just pray for me and then we'll read God's word. Well, Father, as we continue with our worship, I want to take another moment to come to your throne. Come knowing that I'm in full dependence on you for all things this morning. But, Lord, we want, we want to take a step. We want to wade into the pool that's your glory. We want to try to understand just the, the weightiness, the, the praise, the fame that your glory is. Not in an abstract way in a real way. So Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning that you would, through your spirit, just illumine our hearts and minds to see you for who you are. And God, I pray for our kiddos and the teachers leading them that even the youngest hearts in this room would be drawn to you this morning. That much like the thousands of people at Pentecost, that they would be cut to the heart, asking, how do, I, how do I respond? How do I take the next step in following you, if this is all true, and I believe it? And Lord, we need your help for all those things. So it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 starts off. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. We're, we're just thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. John Owen. I've quoted a few times throughout the series. He's a Puritan pastor, theologian in the 1600s. Some would say he was Britain's greatest theologian to ever live. In his work on the glory of Christ, he says, you know if you want to know the glory of Christ, if we want to take steps into that pool, there's probably two areas that we should focus on. The first area says we should look at the properties of his nature, something that we considered last week, that in Jesus we saw both the divine nature and humanity's nature, in perfect communion in one person. But then the second item, he said, that contains the glory of God, is to consider the things in which Christ was purposed to do. That if we want to understand the glory of Christ, we have to understand the things that he was purposed to do. And it's that second part that I want to consider today. And we're going to kind of consider it in In two parts. One this Sunday and one next Sunday. This Sunday is going to be focusing on what has Christ done? What has he been purposed to do in which he has already accomplished? And then next Sunday on Christmas morning, we're going to look at what is Christ still purposed to do? As we long for the second coming of Christ. But today we want to look back. Because the only way that we can actually look forward next Sunday is by looking back this Sunday. So now looking at Romans 5, Paul is reminding Christians here in Rome, and I think by an extension to us today through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we have to remember that there's many things in which Jesus has done. Many things that we need to look back on often. Because notice the past tense language in Romans 5 where Paul highlights that we have been justified, that we have peace with God, that we have obtained access into his grace. Do you see that, church? These are things that have happened. And Paul concludes at the end of verse 2 that remembering these realities, looking back at them, which we want to do today, what's the end goal in mind? That we rejoice. And rejoice in what? The hope of the glory of God. The glory of God. Now if these are past tense, things in which Christ has done, has given us, then what do we need to reduce from that? That these are not things in which we have to go out and earn. Right? These are not items that say, hey, go make yourself right with God. Go justify yourself. Go try to find peace with God. Go try to get access to God. He's not saying go do. He's reminding what has been done. And how has it been done? Well, that's through the work of Jesus Christ. So how are we to understand his work? How are we to understand these realities that have been given to us? Well, I remind you, when we look at that nativity scene, right, we have a few here, maybe you have some in your homes, that nativity scene, right, that remembrance of the birth of Christ is but the opening pages of what Christ's work will be. They are not the final page. They are but the first page of seeing through the person and work of Jesus what he will accomplish And that's been my greatest endeavor, so that the the nativity scene would not just be something that you enjoy remembering that one night, but remembering that one night led to the next day, and the next day, which led to what we just read in Romans 5, justification, peace, access to God. And as I mentioned, one of the greatest ways that I think that we can understand that reality is by focusing on the work of Jesus. Jesus. Now, historically, theologians have have categorized Jesus' work in pattern of certain offices that we see in the Old Testament. Because throughout the Old Testament, there were primarily three offices that were instituted by God to accomplish his work. Do you know what they are? The office of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Because I believe it's a testimony of Scripture to the great glory of God that Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those offices in one person. That he didn't just fulfill one or two, but all of them. All three. He was the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. So let's start with prophets. What was a prophet in the Old Testament? Well, a prophet was a man chosen by God to speak and proclaim the ways of God, to proclaim the will of God. In many ways, a prophet right, was an instrument of God to declare who he is and who we are. We see this in the earliest chapters of the Bible. We see this with Abraham, right? We see this with Moses. We see this with Elijah or Elisha, many other old Testament prophets, and they would say things like, thus saith the Lord, right? They would speak. They would be representatives of God. They were challenged and equipped and anointed to take the words of God and give them to man. That's what a prophet was. But Jesus, church, is not just like the Old Testament prophets, but he is the prophet of God. He's the ultimate person that brings us God's word because He is the Word. Let me take us back to the beginning of the Gospel of John. We've looked at this throughout our series, but it's so rich that I want to return to it again. John 1:14. It should be on the screens, where John summarizes this reality, and says, "And the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see it, church? That the revelation of God that was carried through men in the Old Testament now dwelt bodily in one person, in Jesus Christ. It's why after his baptism. Jesus' baptism, before he began his public ministry, we see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that carried along men as they wrote the Old Testament, now this spirit dwelled in Jesus. And some of the very first words of his public ministry entailed, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So once again, Jesus was not like the Old Testament prophets. He was better. He was what all of those Old Testament prophets were a shadow of Jesus, the reality. He was better because the prophets of old, their revelation, their inspiration of God, that it would come and go, but not with Jesus. Everything that he said, everything he did, was a perfect representative of God's word and God's will to mankind. He was the greatest preacher. And what is known on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus would strikingly point this out. It should be on the screen as well, Mike. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. When Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To be The last one. Be the perfect prophet. You know, Jesus would say, he didn't didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He would say things like this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, making himself the prophet of all prophets. He's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, well, I'm saying to you, and I'm saying it as Lord, as God. Hebrews 1 tells us the same reality. Let me read it to you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by who? His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. You see, Jesus is a prophet unlike any other, He's the perfect prophet. And like that perfect prophet that he is, Jesus revealed who God is perfectly. The exact imprint of his nature. But not only did he reveal who God is, but he also revealed a lot about us. He revealed fully and finally that we, sinners, people, are in need of redemption. That we are in need of a savior. That we need someone better. You see, Jesus removed the veil, the veil that often covered our eyes that we could be good enough on our own. He removed the veil that we should wait for another to come. He removed the veil that makes us believe that as long as I'm better than the guy next to me, I'll be okay. He removed all of that. He used the law of God perfectly. He used it as his primary purpose in our life, and that was to expose our sin, to expose us and go, okay, if that's what the Ten Commandments are really about, I have not followed them. I need somebody else. Is there anybody else that has followed them? And Jesus being that full and perfect and final prophet, his greatest pulpit was what, church? The cross of Calvary where Jesus perfectly revealed who God is and who we are in the beauty that comes with it. So Jesus is the perfect prophet. But the cross did not just reveal who God is and who we are. It wasn't just the final apex or climax of all of truth, but also reminded us of that Jesus is the perfect priest. This is point number two. The second office that I want to consider is that of priesthood. The prophet, if you remember, is right so a, a person representing God to man. Well, a priest was somebody representing man to God. Now, most of the time when we think of Old Testament pri- priests, there's a lot of peace today, I'm sorry. When we think of an Old Testament priest, what do we think about? maybe the person that would provide sacrifices for the sins of the people, right? He would be the one that would offer burnt offerings, Roma offerings, all these different sacrifices, uphold the Levitical sacrificial system. And that is certainly true. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But one of the things that I want to highlight this morning that I think is important for us during this Advent season is the priestly nature of, Of Jesus in his healings. In his healings. Because in Levitical law, the priests were the individuals, were the anointed people, in which if you had a skin disease like leprosy or or something else going on physically, you would be commanded to go to the priest to be inspected. Okay, so you would go to him. And he would determine if you were clean or unclean, if you could join in with the worship of God's people or if you were not able to join in the worship of God's people. But when it came to the healing, throughout Scripture you'll notice that the priests, in and of themselves, actually never healed. They would pray for healing, and sometimes God would grant that. But in and of themselves, they didn't possess healing. They reserve that for God and God alone. But it is that reality then that when Jesus, who is our perfect priest, when he was walking this earth, right, when he was doing his earthly ministry, what do we see Jesus doing? Healings. Healings. He performed miraculous healings all over the place. He healed the lepers, right? He healed the sick. He healed the deaf, the blind, the mute, the demonically oppressed, And notice that he didn't pray that they would be healed by another. Jesus simply did the healing. He did the healing. Like the man blind from birth. What did Jesus do? Well, he reached down and took some mud from the ground and rubbed this man's eyes, and he was able to see. Jesus was demonstrating that the priestly role in perfection did involve healing healing. But why did Jesus heal? Right? Why did he do these miraculous things? Was it just simply to demonstrate he was God amongst us? I think that's a part of it. I think it's a big part of it, that he was demonstrating his divinity. But I think one of the other reasons that I'm trying to explain this morning, one of the other reasons why Jesus did these, these earthly physical healings, is he wanted to demonstrate as that perfect priest there was nothing that he did not care about. There was nothing going on in your life. The misery that you had, the things that seemed to separate you from God, Jesus said, bring those to me. Bring those to me. I know all about them. You see, Jesus' priestly work was demonstrating that he cared about the misery that we often carry with ourselves the things that stress us out, the things that keep us up at night, the things that often keep us from being able to join God's people, whether that's physical, emotional, or at the soul level. Jesus says, I know about that, and you can come to me for that. Things even like shame and guilt, where we believe that we have messed up too much. We have walked in such a way that How could there ever be restoration? How could we ever be made right with God? Jesus in his priestly work says, come to me. Come to me with that and see what I can do. And the truth of the matter is, church, that outside of Christ, we're all spiritually unclean, right? We all carry something. We may be physically healthy, right? We may be on the outside look like we have it all together, but outside of Jesus and his redemption and his cleansing, the Bible says that you're actually dead inside. You're spiritually dead. It's more than just a a physical skin decision, skin uh, issue. It's something far greater than that. So in Jesus' priestly work, he was saying, I'm going to cleanse you I'm going to cleanse you in the way that you desperately need. Now, it does not mean, church, that Jesus will answer every single one of our prayers for physical healing on this side of eternity. But we do know that Jesus answers that prayer one day because one day there will be no more tears. There will be a new and perfected body that is not enslaved by the brokenness of this world. And so Jesus will finish his priestly work one day. But he has demonstrated that priestly work now. Now. And the great promise of our Savior is that he would bear all our iniquities, that he would bear our diseases, he would take on our sickness. And ultimately that's talking about when he went to the cross. Where Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went as our great high priest. He went to perform a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But unlike the Old Testament priests who would sacrifice bulls and goats and shed their blood, Jesus offered up himself as a sacrifice. That himself would be the substitute. That himself would bear all of our sin and all of our sickness. And in doing so, church, in doing so, we have peace with God. We have been cleansed by God, by the cross, and we can actually come to him in worship. Not going, am I clean? Have I done enough? Have I been outside the camp long enough? Can I finally come in? Have I got my act together? He goes, no, no, no. You come to me because you are clean. And you're clean because I was clean on your behalf. And I give my righteousness, my adherence to the law, my perfect work to you. And let me show you this from Hebrews 4.14, where the author of Hebrews connects these dots about the priesthood and being able to come to Jesus, being able to come to him no matter what. Listen to these words. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In verse 16, let us, let us. Hear those words spoken to you this morning, church. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are sweet words, church. Let us come to him, come to his throne. Wait, but a priest didn't have a throne. Who had a throne, church? Church. A king did. So even here, we see is that the true priest, the better high priest, also was a king. And that's something that the Old Testament predicted over and over, that the priest, the great priest, the great prophet, would also be a great king. A king that we long to serve under. A king that would lead to life flourishing. A king that would lead us where we couldn't lead ourselves, a king that would protect us from foreign authority and attacks. You know, one of the, I don't have a slide for this, but one of the very first things that when the angel Gabriel showed up to the Virgin Mary and was telling her that she would bear a son, and this son would be God most high. One of the things that Gabriel actually told Mary is that this son would be king and his kingdom would have no end it's why Mary did know and rejoiced in her song the Magnificent so lastly point number three Jesus work embodied that of a king the perfect king a king who would have absolute authority and he would use it for good Jesus demonstrated his authority in many ways church Like when he announced the kingdom of God was at hand. We saw earlier. And why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king was there. Jesus demonstrated his authority over creation. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to the storm and caused it to cease? That was a demonstration of his authority. His kingly authority over all creation. Or when he caused trees to wither. Or even the dead to raise again. Jesus was demonstrating his authority, his kingdom, that everything, all of creation is in subjection to him because he is the perfect king. But the greatest testimony of any king then would be, if that is true, if that person has that much authority, that much power, what will he do with it? What will he do with it to those who are in subjection to him? Would he flex it? Right? Would he flex that dominion and that authority like so many earthly kings have done in the past, continue to do to this day? Not at all. Because Jesus is a perfect king, unlike any other king we've ever seen. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, often referred to as the triumphal entry, where Jesus rode in on a donkey, a fulfillment of prophecy, but also a reminder that he was coming in to a city that belonged to him because he was king. And he did so humble and lowly, not on a war horse to try to convince people that he had power and authority and he was going to do things to you so that you would be forced to bend your knee out of begrudging submission. No. He came in on a donkey and he came in to actually lay his life down for his people. So Jesus used his office of kingship to humble himself to the point of death. So he showed us his kingship through leadership and sacrifice. A king that laid down his life so no longer we would be enslaved to this world. You see, a good king, church, a good king will not let a lesser king have authority over you. And Jesus realized how much every single one of us were in bondage to sin. That we were in bondage to the authority that sin had in our lives. That the way that sin often governed us, that sin manipulated us, that sin was our taskmaster in whom we had to serve. You see, Jesus in his kingship decided, I'm going to break those chains I'm going to usurp that authority with a better authority. And so when Jesus went to the cross and he defeated Satan, sin, and death, he was liberating us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light. That sin no longer has power or authority. It certainly is still present. We know that. There's the presence of sin But if you are a Christian this morning, right, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ, it no longer has power over you. There may be presence, but it does not have power. It is no longer your king. The man on the cross is. And the first advent then reminds us that when Jesus came, right, when he was born, when he grew up, and he lived a life that we couldn't live, He also came as a good king to lay down his life for us. And as a good king does, Jesus never loses one that belongs to him. He does not fail. And the great message of the Bible is then that between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus is he is gathering his people, saying, come to me, see my kingdom Let me remove that veil that's on your eyes and let you see the light that I am. The only one that you can hope in. The only one that you can truly rest in. That great king. And that great king continues to invite us to his throne as we saw in Hebrews 4. A throne that he ascended back to after his resurrection. A throne in which he occupies to this day. A throne that's marked by what church? grace, undeserved merit, undeserved gift. We come to the throne because that's where Jesus gives us what we couldn't give ourselves. That's where we see where Jesus did what we could not do on our own. So it's not a throne marked by begrudging obedience, saying, if you get your life together, come to me. But it's a throne marked by grace saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And see what happens when you do that. Now, church, Jesus then is our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And through his work, we can come to him, right? We can come to him for salvation. We can come to him for assurance. We can come to him for the change that we desperately want to see in our own lives. We can come to him this Advent season. We don't have to settle for the temporary anymore. We don't have to settle for the things that will be gone in a matter of weeks. But we can settle. And it's not even the right word to settle, but we can come to what is beauty, beautiful and right and majestic. We can come to the very thing in which our hearts long for, that peace that we long for. It can only be found in the Prince of Peace. Church, as your pastor, I often get to have a front view of of many of the things that seem to wreck your heart on a week-in and week-out basis. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's just stress. These things that seem to just dominate and get often inflamed during this time of year. And my plea to you this morning is come to him. Your marriage won't be able to fix this. Right? Your relationship, your job will not be able to give you what you think it will give you. Your family will not be able to give you ultimately what you long for. Not even your legacy, but only him, Church. Only him. Only the one who is prophet, priest, and king. And here's the good news. Because we often try to be all those things in our own life, don't we? We try to be prophets in our life, right? Trying to, to teach ourselves what is God, or what's his will, or who is he, who am I? We like to try to do that to ourselves, to be the prophet of our own lives, to understand where God is going But we don't have to be. We have a greater prophet in Jesus. We try to be our own priest too. right? We try to cleanse ourselves. Try to get our acts together. Try to do things that make us feel like we can come to God today. Church, the good news is we have a priest who's already done that. Who's already cleansed us from our sins and invites us to come to him. Or what about king? I know this is a big one in my life. I try to be king of my own life. I try to rule and reign and control all the factors that I deal with every single day. But here's the truth. I'm not a good king. You don't have to know me very long to know that I'm not a good king in my own life. But I have a king. I have the king of kings. as the book of Revelation says about Jesus. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. Who invites me to come to his throne. And to rest in his work. And to do that, we get him. And we get his glory. So to end our time, if we can return to Romans 5 once more. Where we started today, but let me return with now a a great reminder of the work of Christ. The work of Jesus. We are reminded that we have been justified by faith. We've come to Him. Faith in Christ alone. That we have been declared righteous in Him. Not ourselves, but in Him. Off of His work. And that in Him we have a perfect mediator. A perfect priest. Who gives us the peace of God. Because we've been cleansed. And that is through the work of the prophet. Through the work of the priest's we have obtained access into his grace. We can go into the throne room of God where our ruling and reigning King Jesus sits and we can do so with a great joy in our faces. Maybe with tears. Maybe with a smile. But joy. Knowing that it's a joyous hope That we have in his eternal life, in his wonderful kingdom, in which we get to stand on. And what does he say that we do? We hope in the glory of God because of it. What a gift he is, church. Let's all come to him this morning. Let's remember the That's what Advent's all about. Let's pray and we'll respond. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I want to simply thank you. At the most sincerest part of who I am, God, I want to thank you for your work. I want to